HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Broadcasting live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.com. On behalf of everybody at HeritageRadioNetwork.com, we'd like to send a special thank you to the Hearst Ranch, our biggest supporter and longest-running sponsor since we first started in 2009. Hearst Ranch is the nation's largest single-source supplier of free-range, all-natural, grass-fed, and grass-finished beef. Since 1865, the Hearst family has raised cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of the Central California coast. The result is beef with extraordinary flavor that's as memorable and natural as the surrounding landscape. For more information, visit www.hearstranch.com. Okay, folks, it's Thursday at 1 o'clock, and once again, you've tuned into the Heritage Radio Network. You're listening to The Farm Report, and we're coming to you live, as always, from the back of the wonderful Roberta's at 261 Moore Street in Bushwick, Brooklyn. And we are on the line uh, again this week with Alan Leibowitz of Zingerman's Coffee Company. Alan, welcome to the show. Good to be here, and thank you. Yeah, thanks for coming back. So, Alan, you run a a small coffee roasting business uh, out of Ann Arbor, Michigan, through the Zingerman's Community of Businesses. And we had you on the show last week and then again this week to talk about coffee. And last week, for those of you who missed it, we we talked about coffee kind of from the growing end um, up to the point where you get it, Alan. We kind of left off with the roasting process. So I wanted to pick up there and talk through a little bit uh, of, of coffee roasting, kind of your area of expertise, and maybe make some links between how the coffee comes in and, and how that affects your roasting choices, uh, if it does, and, and what are those choices? Yeah, it, uh, it's a good point. There are many, uh, many choices that are made all along the way. The first starts, and we talked about the green coffee last week and how it was grown, uh, processed, in some respects, and then exported at the farm. And uh, the way it was processed at the farm actually makes a big difference in the taste. So uh, we talked, just to recap really briefly, uh, you know, coffee is the dried seed of the fruit, which is called a cherry, and that fruit could have been processed uh, of one of a couple ways, depending on the country. It could have either been dried in the fruit and then uh, 
kind of where the fruit was pulped dry, or it could have been kind of squished out and then what we call uh, fermented and washed to create washed coffee. And they both have uh, distinctly different flavors. In fact, uh, I recently tasted some coffees from Salvador from one farm that processed them four different ways, and they tasted like four different coffees. So, the, so it was the same bean, but just processed in four different ways. Yeah, it was actually fascinating. These guys, uh, it was kind of a research project. They harvested coffee within a two-hour window from one part of one farm, and they sent part of it to be fermented and washed, and they let part of it dry naturally in the cherries, called natural. And then they uh, did what's called a uh, uh, pulped natural, where they squished the seeds but let them sit on a patio and dry, and then they actually fully washed one using these mechanical washing systems. Uh, and it tasted like four different coffees. Wow. So, yeah, it's, you know, uh, I don't know what the, you know, equivalent would be for other fruits that we, we might be familiar with. Uh, but that's one of the reasons coffee that it gets, you know, it's a really a fairly complex, sophisticated uh, processing from the farmer, you know, to your table. Yeah, I think so. it sounds like something you can really geek out about. <laughs> Yeah, and you know we talk about we talk about it a lot in the coffee business. We geek out about it. At the end of the day, I think the best thing a, a consumer can do is really just judge based on you know taste. And it's probably not unlike any of the other products or farmers you've talked to on the uh, on your show. At the end of the day, does the product uh, you know taste better? Is it a better product? Uh, you know, how was it produced? Were people careful along the way? You know, did they take care of the land and the, you know, the fauna on the farm as well? Yeah, and that's something I want to kind of jump into that producer end thing in, in a few minutes. But before we get into that, let's let's talk about the roasting process and, and what that looks like, what kind of equipment you're using and and kind of how you how you make decisions. I mean, I think that's one of the things that's been so fascinating about this this discussion with you is, you know, at every stage, there's kind of, you can choose your own adventure, you know, you can go down this path or this path, and they all can end up with a different route. So, you know, yeah. you, you get a bag of green coffee in, um, and you work with coffee producers from around the country. I mean, what um, what choices go into your, your roasting decisions? And then once you're roasting, kind of just take us through the nuts and bolts of that process. Yeah, well, the first uh, the first choice is what green we roast. And we do that by having relationships with either uh, specific farms directly or with uh, importers or specialists that have, you know, people on the, uh, on the farm. And we'll get uh, samples when we're looking for a particular region. There are certain characteristics we'll look for and try to source. Uh, here's the weird, interesting uh, kind of a secret, the in- insider secret in the coffee world, a, a really smart gentleman, Kevin Knox, who wrote a phenomenal book called Coffee Basics which I, I read about every two years, uh, Kevin said, you know, the real secret to being a great coffee buyer is to have a sample roaster and a FedEx account. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, we, sometimes people like to portray, you know, people uh, going to all these, um, you know, native growing regions, you know, which is true, but really it's not as helpful as, uh, you know, getting in samples, uh, finding ones that are the quality you like. We roast a sample. Uh, so to answer your question directly, we start by getting samples, which will be, you know, anywhere from, a, you know, 100 to 400 gram samples. We have a bank of these tiny little four, uh, sam- sample roasters. We have what's called a four-barrel sample roaster. 
at a lettuce roast for individual 100-gram samples, which is, you know, a little over uh, three and a half ounces. Okay. And we, uh, we'll get, if we're looking for a particular region with a certain characteristic, we'll get in, uh, you know, a dozen or two dozen samples, and we just start roasting and tasting them and doing a first evaluation out of this sample roaster. Okay, so, so roasting the coffee, what, I mean, what are you roasting it in? It's a special piece of equipment? Yeah, it's a, uh, the roasters we tend to use are uh, what are called barrel roasters. You could think of it, it's, you know, literally it's a, it's a metal barrel that's heated underneath. It's uh, insulated on top. Um, so it rotates. There are paddles inside these roasters, either on the small sample ones or a big one, that tumble the coffee. And as the coffee is being tumbled, it's heated using conduction, which is heat through the drum, and then convection, which is the air moving through the beans. Um, and it goes through a few stages. It's not just like not like baking a cake where you set this roaster at 300 and you come back. Uh, you actually put lots of energy in at different times. Cause you're starting essentially with a raw seed, and that seed is green and hard. It's not unlike, you know, seeing, uh, you know, wheat berries uh, before they're processed. And then uh, they start off green. They have a lot of moisture. You slowly drive the moisture out. And once the moisture is gone, the coffee starts to uh, change color. It goes from green to uh, pale yellow to light, uh, super light brown, and then it starts browning towards the end. It actually puffs up. It gains about 40% in volume, and it goes from being this relatively small bean to a, uh, this green bean to this nice, dark, roasted uh, coffee that we know. And by the time it's done, uh, we might have roasted in 12 minutes. Let's just, you know, picking up kind of middle-of-the-road coffee. Mm-hmm. 12 to 15 minutes, it goes from dark green. It loses uh, in total, about 18% in weight, picks up about 40% in volume, and goes from this, like, pebble-hard bean to that, you know, nice uh, uh, coffee, which is, you know, uh, very easy to grind and very soft at that point. Yeah, what would happen if you tried to, like, grind and brew just the green bean? Yeah, it, it really has no flavor. Uh, you know, it's, it's almost, you know, like the difference between uh, getting corn... Uh, you know, like a seed corn versus, you know, popped corn or sweet corn off of the vine. Just kind of a whole different product. Okay. Uh, it really has, really has no, no redeeming characteristics green. <laughs> and so you, when you're roasting, so you have kind of the smaller machine that is kind of designed for, for doing kind of sample roast so that you can, you know, roast a small amount and, and be able to taste a bunch of varieties. But you're kind of normal workhorse machine, I mean, how, how much coffee are you roasting at a time? And, and can you give us a sense of scale between, you know, someone who's doing an operation like Zingerman's Coffee Company versus, you know, a company, I mean, at the other extreme, you know, like Starbucks, you know, does, does the machinery change pretty dramatically or not really? Yeah, it, it's a good question. It, it varies from a uh, big company to big company. But uh, for what it's worth, when we start on our small scale sample roaster, we're doing 100 gram, you know, three and a half, four ounce samples. When we scale it up for production, we're roasting approximately 66 pounds, which is uh, 30 kilos, which happens to be exactly half of a jute bag of coffee. The kind of the industry standard is a 132 pound bag. So in production, we'll roast 66 pounds. And depending on the roast, it'll typically be between 13 and 15 minutes. So when we're in production, we're roasting uh, maybe uh, 
250 pounds an hour green. Okay. Uh, just to scale that up, uh, when you get into the, the super big companies like Starbucks or Green Mountain Coffee, these guys will roast. Uh, oh, who's that in the background? Sorry about that. That's a, uh, one of the German Shepherd dogs. <laughs> on guard as always. <laughs> I um, remember you have a couple like big, beautiful dogs, right? Yeah, they're they are sweethearts. Uh, but uh, so the um, so when we scale, uh, we roast. Let's say we'll call it a half a bag at a time. Mm-hmm. And if you're somebody like let's say Green Mountain, you're running probably five roasters that are each ten times the size of ours. Okay. <laughs> so they could run, you know. And they'll run those 24 hours a day. So we might roast in total, uh, I don't know, 200,000 pounds this year. And somebody big like Green Mountain at one of their plants in the world might roast 15 million pounds a year. Yeah, sirs. Okay, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, I think that's like one of the interesting things about this coffee conversation is, you know, along with all these kind of decisions throughout the process, there's all these kind of questions um, around scale and, and, and availability. And I was, you know, kind of trying to think of, you know, who are the, the kind of boutique roasters that we look to here in New York City. And, you know, my, my short list was Stumptown, you know, Gorilla, Blue Bottle, which, you know, it's a San Francisco company. And I guess Stumptown's out of Portland. And then yeah. Dallas Coffee, I know over in New Jersey, supplies to a lot of, of shops and whatnot here. And, and just how you have such a variety of, of choices as a consumer uh, about the coffee. Um, and, and I know one, one of the things uh, that coffee, coffee roasters talk a lot about it, is freshness and, and timing. So, you know, we talked about with the green beans wanting to use those within a year. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. And then once the coffee is roasted, I mean, what, what happens, you know, what's, what's the kind of optimal drinking time after that and how does it kind of change as a product? And, and maybe if you can answer also like this idea of putting coffee in your freezer. I mean, is that something we should or shouldn't be doing? <laughs> yeah, uh, you should definitely not be doing that. The easiest way to think of that we like to tell uh, people is to think of coffee like bread. Uh, there are a lot of things you can do it but really there's nothing like freshly baked bread and freshly roasted coffee like from some of the roasters you've mentioned you're in an area that has a really long and rich history in fact really close to in brooklyn is uh, gorilla coffee who uh does a really great job craft craft roasting uh but the short answer is fresh is best and i would strongly encourage everybody to try to buy coffee from a local roaster and, you know, there's no reason you can't get coffee that was roasted in the last 24 hours. And uh, I can tell you that all local roasters would love to see you come in and buy half a pound of coffee twice a week uh, because you'd be getting super fresh product. Coffee has a, tr- a tremendous number of volatile uh, components, volatile oils, uh, aldehydes, uh, other compounds that uh, are very volatile and they uh, leave the coffee over time or they oxidize very, very quickly. So for drip coffee, you know, if you get coffee that was roasted within two days, you're getting it really probably at its peak. Uh, espresso can age for maybe five days. Espresso likes to off-gas a little bit more and actually mellows, you know, with a few days on it. But I can guarantee your uh, listeners or you, if you have never had coffee that is one or two days out of the roaster, it's, it's like... Honestly, it's like going to a bakery and getting fresh bread. 
Oh, awesome. Well, that makes me a little hungry and thirsty at the same time. A perfect opportunity to take a quick break and uh, give you a chance to catch your breath. Then we'll come back and continue this conversation. Bringing it back, a little tough to uh, turn the volume down on that song, kind of rocking out with my producer, uh, Jack. Thanks for that track. Um, and we are back on the line with Alan Leibowitz of Zingerman's Coffee Company. Um, Alan, I want to talk a little bit more about, you know, decisions uh, of coffee buyers. So both on, you know, my end of the spectrum, you know, which we were kind of starting to tuck into as far as coffee freshness and, and what kind of questions to be asking buying, but then also to to follow up with you know coffee by on, on your end but since we were talking about consumers let's kind of continue that now i know and i'm getting the sense throughout our conversation that you know we as a consumer i can nerd out to the extreme of, of coffee buying you know where i you know i am that consumer who goes in to the to the roaster twice a week and i'm trying different blends and i'm i'm asking questions about freshness and then i'm, I'm making decisions about how i'm going to brew it and water temperature and you know there's really this kind of exciting opportunity to e- explore a lot of um, different flavors and really get to learn about the nuances of this product and I think on the other hand, you have, you know, people who get up in the morning, you know, are on the way to work and they pop into, uh, you know, one of these boutique shops we're talking about. But we also have, you know, you pop into uh, McDonald's for their premium coffees or, you know, Dunkin Donuts, America's favorite coffee. And so I guess I'm just wondering uh, across the spectrum, you know, what as a responsible consumer, what are the things we really should be looking for? You know, you hear locally roasted, you hear fair trade, um, and, you know, there's obviously price to consider and availability. I mean, it's a lot to work through. So, uh, you know, maybe just kind of giving us a sense of, of how much should coffee really be costing? I mean, what should we be expecting and what kind of questions should we be asking? Yeah, wow, that, there's a, a, a lot, lot there. there. Yeah, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> and, no, it's good. It's, you know, you, you, the, the first thing really is, uh, you know, you kind of pinpointed the range of coffee consumers which just by itself points out that, you know, coffee's a, a really big world. And uh, even, you know, on the consumer end, there are some people who just, you know, drink it in the morning because it's a generic hot brown caffeinated beverage. And that's the person that's going to love their 95-cent, you know, bodega burner coffee, uh, which is uh, fine. It's just a different, it's more of the commodity world. And then the roasters you've mentioned uh, and the thing you'll be getting at a, a local uh, coffee shop, this really falls into the specialty world, which is, you know, 
clearly what you you and I are interested in. And, um, you know, we've, we've, I've thought about this a lot, and I, I think that the best thing a local consumer uh, can do is get an understanding, which you can really only do from somebody uh, local, you know, say, you know, where's the coffee coming from? Uh, you know, let's assume taste is a given. You find a coffee that you like, because I don't ever believe in buying a product just for the cause, per se. Mm-hmm. I like to know what the product is. Uh, is it a high-quality product? And then I want to know uh, the story, you know, behind it. And then do I, you know, kind of believe in the way it's produced? Uh, so some of the things you can uh, find out about uh, is there should be really the uh, transparency throughout the chain. A coffee roaster should be able to uh, know who grew the coffee. Uh, if they didn't import it themselves, who imported it? They should probably have a good idea of who got paid for the coffee and what they got paid for the coffee. Uh, and, and to me, that's just kind of you know a, a fair practice. Uh, the labels, to me, uh, in the industry are a little bit less important. Um, I think for small specialty boutique roasters, uh, it's not really as important to have a label from some third-party organization as it is uh, for a commodity coffee, like you know, if you're buying a supermarket brand. Right, because you're more likely like, to have a personal relationship. Right, uh, right. You know, exactly. If you're talking to uh, a roaster like Blue Bottle or Gorilla Coffee, where they've actually been to a farm... They know the farmer. The farmer set the price for the coffee. The farmer said, I am going to get paid this. Uh, you know, to me, there's nothing more fair. Uh, so, you know, a, a label, uh, these labels, unfortunately, don't really mean much, you know. Uh, but that's kind of a different story. <laughs> uh, having a label doesn't let you know where the coffee came from. Right. It actually, actually doesn't even let you know that the person got paid uh, for producing or picking that coffee. That's kind of one of those weird uh, unknown facts about some of these programs. Well, you know, can you be more specific? I mean, I'm thinking in particular of like the fair trade label. So my assumption when I see fair trade is that, you know, someone, and, and I guess this kind of belies kind of the understanding of the labels, that someone has made a decision a- as to what's a fair price and has ensured that the farmer was paid a fair price and you know not exploited by the process of the coffee like that's my assumption but are, are are you saying that's not something i can assume or that it's just not that black and white or yeah it's uh like many things it's uh it's 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 not uh it's not as simple as that and my kind of one of the things i just want people to be aware of is it's not as simple yet it's being kind of sold or marketed as being that simple so if you've got a, a label on a coffee, uh, you assume that uh, somebody, you know, hiked coffee down from a mountain and got what that floor price is for that. And I'm not trying to pick on fair trade. It's a great a, uh, great program for many reasons. But it doesn't necessarily mean that uh, Aaron got paid a buck fifty a pound. It means the co-op that produced the, you know, coffee – collected it from many farmers, got paid a certain price. Okay. What, the picker, what the picker got paid is really unknown. Okay. And uh, so that's just, it's just one of those weird things. And uh, they also only, uh, a lot of labeling organizations will only uh, certify a co-op, not an individual producer. So you could have somebody who's doing best-in-class farming, best-in-practice pra- labor and ecological practices, 
yet can never be certified because he's not a co-op. Uh, would be just, just one example. Again, I'm not trying to pick on any particular one, but I, in my opinion, some of the labeling tends to dumb down a really complicated set of sure. relationships. But I, and I think, you know, what what is good about the labeling is that it does begin to uh, communicate to consumers that there are some differences amongst coffee and there are things going on and there are choices kind of to be thinking about. And I think any issue in food that that is, you know, especially coffee being such a kind of big, meaty, multifaceted global commodity that, you know, as a general consumer, you know, you you have to give people entree points um, to, to the conversation. And then I, th- I think, you know, the other thing that, I, you know, I always, I always find kind of as a question that comes back and forth for me is, you know, obviously if I'm here in New York, in my neighborhood, I kind of know where to get coffee and, and what I want to get. And if I'm out and traveling and, and I want to pick up a cup of coffee, I'm kind of always faced with this, you know, conundrum of like, where can I go that I know it's going to be decent and that I can also feel kind of morally I'm making a good choice. And and then you have these other this interplay of this other thing, you know, where, you know, Star- Starbucks has kind of been vilified, I think, in in much of the community that I, I feel like I or we maybe operate in as, as this kind of signifier of this uh big kind of global uh, overtaker or neighborhood overtaker or gentrifier. And at the same time, you know, they do provide, uh, you know, health insurance for their employees and they do pay a fair wage. And I think those things are important to me and the coffee is important to me. So, you know, as far as like sifting through when, when we're, when we're traveling, you know, if you had to pick between, you know, a, a Starbucks and McDonald's, a Dunkin' Donuts coffee, you know, is there, is there a difference there? Is there any kind of, factors that we can feel better about as consumers or i mean is it really using our iphone and finding out you know where's the where's the like nearest kind of local roaster is that what we should be i mean obviously that's what we should be striving for but in you know in the interim are there are there variations in some of those other choices yeah well there's a lot of variation and, and you bring up a lot of great points better better than i could have one is that some of these certifications uh, do provide an entry point for people to start developing some language and to understand the issues, and that, that part is great. Uh, so blind, if you're in a grocery store or you're traveling on the interstate and you have a choice between, you know, uh, fast food chain X for coffee and it just says this is our, our super blend, uh, it doesn't really tell you anything. Right. Uh, whereas if you, you, know, you go into another uh, place on a toy and it says, this is Rainforest Alliance certified coffee. That really does uh, mean something. Uh, so, you know, you, you bring up a, a number of really good points. To me, again, the best thing you can do is really kind of understand and work with places that understand and are able to articulate uh, what it, where their coffee comes from and uh, what makes it different. So if I buy from uh, these farmers in Guatemala who are able to set their own price, uh, they have no idea what uh, a labeling organization is or what Rainforest Alliance is, and they, it doesn't really matter to them because they produce great coffee. We pay a premium for it, uh, and that's a win. What so is I that? Guess, I mean, sorry to interrupt, but I mean, can you talk about what the price range is on that level? Like, I, it, you know, if you're going onto the onto the floor to kind of make your purchase of coffee versus you're going to work with a direct farmer, I mean, are we talking like? 
$2 a pound or six or three or like what are like what what are some of the ranges there that that the actual farmer is getting for for the coffee? Well, uh, coffee trades the biggest it trade most coffee trades relative to a commodity price that's set by what was the New York Board of Trade, now the International Commodities Exchange. They have a coffee index, which is the thing you see on you know Wall Street. And it just gives you a relative indicator for where things are at. So let's say today that that uh, indicator might be, uh, let's say, 255 today. Okay. Uh, when you're doing uh, a direct uh, relationship where in, in the past if a picker had made, you know, I, I don't know what they would have sold their coffee. They might have sold their coffee at, in the past at, let's say, 160 a pound uh, uh, finished. If we have a direct relationship where we know the broker, we let them set their price, uh, they could set it. Uh, it. It ranges. It's a very complicated question. But suffice it to say that if people are set, setting their own prices directly, not going through these middlemen, mm-hmm. just picking, consolidating it, or a co-op, it would not be unusual to get 40% more uh, to 50% more. And I know some programs where they're they're – they get bonuses based on quality where the coffee is scored, and not only do they get a significant premium over what they normally get, they get a bonus for producing high-quality coffee. And that bonus can be another 20%. I mean, and these are life-changing amounts of dollars. Yeah, well, sure. I mean, if I thought about doubling or 40% increase on my income, I mean, yeah, I would be drinking really great coffee. <laughs> <laughs> No, um, how much is, so what's the range um, for the Zingerman's Coffee Company coffees? Like, what's the range in price, and and what are some of those different, like, what accounts for those differences? Uh, The the range in price and what we pay or what we sell for? What you sell for, what I would buy as a consumer. Yeah, um, well, you know, here's an example, kind of our average coffees, uh, and these are from farms with which we have a uh, direct relationship, farms that, you know, we go down, we, we actually select the coffees at harvest time and bring them back. Uh, those might run anywhere in the 18 to $20 a pound roasted. Um, to We have a coffee that's going to probably sell for about $80 a pound. That's a, a whole different species of coffee, rarely brought into the U.S. It's developed by a, a gentleman, Nishant Gurjarer, from a farm in India, who's actually reviving these um, lesser-known species of coffee. And we've we're the only ones in the U.S. to have it, and it costs us a fortune to bring it in. Wow. So that's kind of the range, uh, kind of, you know, sky's the limit, I guess. Sure, sure. <laughs> but, As you know, On the uh, other hand, we're also supporting his breeding program where he's doing these. Uh, they're, they're, they're not really heirloom, but they're, they're just kind of the more unusual species, and he's keeping them alive. So we're, we're willing to bring in a small amount of this insanely expensive coffee so he can propagate this for the next five years. Cool. Cool. I, I mean, like, kind of interesting to think about setting up a, a coffee tasting like you would for, you know, wine or, or some other, like cheese or some of those other products. Well, I want to wrap up on kind of a lighter note. Alan, can you tell us a little bit about what what's your favorite way to drink coffee right now, not in your yeah, life? My, Just... my favorite way is still hands down I love drinking a great straight espresso. It's just a very unique beverage. When you force uh, hot water under pressure, you get espresso, which is that luxurious crema, which are volatile oils that coat the palate of your tongue, and then they burst. So you get, you know, minutes worth of enjoyment out of a single sip. And uh, to me, I, I 
right now I'm still right now and for the last 12 years make espresso every single morning. <laughs> wow, that sounds like a great way to start the day. Well, if people want to get a taste of your coffee, they can find you at www.zingermanscoffeecompany.com. Is that right? Yep, just, uh, just zingermanscoffee.com. Thank you. Zingermanscoffee.com. Alan, thank you so much for coming on for another great show. And tune in next week at 1 o'clock for another episode of The Farm Report. Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com, as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening. The Heritage Meat Shop has just opened in the Essex Street Market. Open from 9 to 7, Monday through Saturday, and 10 to 6 on Sundays, the Heritage Meat Shop supports independent family farms and animal welfare-approved and certified humane raising standards. Most importantly, they offer a wide variety of heritage breeds. So stop by, get a sandwich, try the charcuterie. The Heritage Meat Shop at the Essex Street Market. The following is a message from Heritage Foods USA. 14 family farms and over 50 restaurants have committed to participation in No Goat Left Behind, a new program developed by Heritage Foods USA, a meat distribution company dedicated to preserving endangered breeds. Without an end market, the majority of male dairy goats are sold into the commodity market or killed at birth. Dairy farmers are always struggling with feed prices, milk prices, and weather. Goats usually have twins or triplets, and for every female who will become a milker, there is a male buckling who will become a financial drain. It makes no sense that these males are sold into the commodity market or put to death when the United States imports almost 50% of its annual goat supply. Home consumers interested in participating can order goats through HeritageFoodsUSA.com. They will receive goats via FedEx, and home delivery is available for New York City customers. In addition to the goat, these packages will also include recipes and a DVD featuring interviews with the farmers, processors, and chefs demonstrating how to break down and cook goat. Again, for more information on No Goat Left Behind, visit www.heritagefoodsusa.com or call Aaron Fairbanks at 718-389-0985.